If you are familiar with the letters of the Apostle Paul to the churches of the New Testament, you probably noticed a pattern that is common to nearly all of them. He begins with doctrine and he ends with practical instruction. First the truth and then the truth in life. First what you should know and then how you should live. And the pattern itself has a lesson in it, and that is that the Christian life is an outgrowth of understanding, of doctrinal understanding. It's a response to truth. Never think that theology is unimportant because theology shapes the mind and it gives the heart understanding which creates proper motives and holy inclinations. And that is a wonderful thing. And I mean wonderful in its original sense of that word. It's full of wonder. It really is. A godly motive, a holy disposition in the soul is so contrary to the way of human beings that it is nothing less than a very grand miracle. It's something God makes possible, but which we have to labor in. And I mean labor. I've never met a person who is naturally holy, ever. I've met people that were nice, but not holy, because they're not the same thing. Holiness takes soul work. It takes self-examination in the light of God's word. It takes control over one's thought life. It takes a willingness to make changes in habits changes in relationships, in the use of our time and resources, in the very core of our being. What does it mean to be a Christian in the world? What drives us? What do we live for? What impels us to do what we do and make the choices that we make? What is a Christian man or a, a Christian woman or a Christian child? What should a Christian employer be like or what should a Christian employee be like? What should a Christian student be like? What is unique about fatherhood from God's point of view or, or mothering? What is a Christian home? What governs what goes on in the Christian home? How does a Christian recreate himself? How does he have fun? Those are all significant questions. They're not small questions. They're enormous questions. And they deserve our attention and our energy to get answers. A Christian is not a sinner marked saved. A Christian is a new creation, the Apostle Paul tells us, a different kind of human being. He may look like everybody else, but something amazing has happened on the inside. And if we do what God says to do, that something only gets more amazing as we progress in our faith. There's nothing sadder than a Christian who has given up on internal transformation or doesn't have time for it. You know, you can plaster a Christian face on and uh, have a whole Christian demeanor and learn Christian lingo and um, get all this external stuff all lined up and probably get away with it for a very long while, but you will not be what you could be and you will not be what God made you for if you're not doing soul work. So Romans chapter 12 begins the practical section of the book of Romans. We've studied theology in Romans for a year, and now it's time to spend a good amount of time studying the, the practical side. Truth applied to living. So today, um, just being here, you have an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity for personal reflection to examine your own life and to uh, line it up here. So I'd like to encourage you to do that this morning. Don't take Romans 12 one and two and say, you know, I know somebody that really needs to hear this. Let's just think about ourselves today as we apply this uh, text. Verse one, 
I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Some translations say reasonable service of worship or something like that. That's fine, too. Paul is urging us, brethren, it says, to action, to do something. He wants us to make a sacrifice, not a sacrifice to death, but a living sacrifice. And how? He wants us to do it by the mercies of God. And notice that other word that's there that connects us back to the previous section. It says, therefore. I urge you, therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. It takes you right back to where we've been. And I think Paul is talking about the whole 11 chapters. Based on all that he has said, which is revealing the mercies of God, he says, I urge you to do something. All that has been said about our salvation, that it is a gift of God, that it is a free gift, that it is of grace, that it is something God has achieved for us while we were helpless in rebellion and sin, sin against him, by the mercies, the infinite and deep mercies of God, which we have received, he's asking us to make an appropriate response to that. And there's a real wonderful short sentence in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. You probably know it. It says, we love because he first loved us, right? That's talking about an appropriate response to the love of God. And if we spend any time at all treasuring in our heart and in our thinking what God has done for us in Christ, his mercy, there should be an appropriate response to that. And that is giving him us. That's the appropriate response. Not just in words, and certainly not grudgingly, all right, you saved me from my sins, and I deserved hell and death forever, and you gave me eternal life to be in glorious presence forever, and I guess I'll give you some time, you know. What is that? But as we reflect on his excellence, on his worth, on his trustworthiness, on his love, we find nothing better to give ourselves to than him. Isn't that right? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, he says. Worship God by giving him your body as an instrument for his use. Now that is a very complete offer to do that. I mean, you don't go many places without your body, right? I mean, most of us are with ourselves almost constantly. <laughs> if you really think about it. So wherever you go, wherever you take yourself, whatever you do, you should be unto him in that place, wherever it is and in whatever the circumstance you find yourself, whoever you're with. The verb present is, um, I hate bringing in Greek tenses and stuff, but it's kind of important sometimes. In Greek, they have different tenses than they have in English, and there's something called an aorist, and it usually denotes a sort of a one-time act kind of thing. And it suggests here that this is a major binding decision that you make. You're like, there's some moment in your life that you're going to give this gift of yourself back to God, your body, for him to use exactly as he wants to and for his glory. And whatever he wants is fine. And the question, I guess, is have you done that? Have you done that? Now, this is one of those things that modern Christians believe because I preached a sermon on it, you've done it. Oh, I heard that one, yeah. But you actually have to do this. Just hearing that we're supposed to present our bodies to God as a living, holy sacrifice isn't it. 
It's when you go home, and if you've never done this, and in your own devotional time, your own prayer time with God, giving Him yourself for His glory for whatever purpose He would have you to do. So don't think that because you've heard it, you've done it. This is something between you and Him. And it must be done at a given time in reality in your life. Now, the suggestion that this is a one-time event does not preclude you from affirming this decision every day. I mean, every day in prayer, you should affirm to God that you are His, that you have decided to be, in the past, an instrument for Him, a glove for His hand, if you will, that you recognize the importance of holiness in your life in order to be a proper and useful instrument. That's why he says a holy and living sacrifice. And you can see the motive, the passion of the godly Christian in the phrase in verse 1 there, acceptable to God. That is the great goal, to offer him some service, a life that is acceptable to him. How are you doing on that? What do you think the Lord thinks? And honestly, you know, what do you think he thinks? We all have our failures and our weaknesses, of course, but does he, does he see a heart that belongs to him, a body for him to use? 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, it says, Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There will actually be an accounting. Not a place of condemnation. If you are saved by Jesus Christ, if, you've stuck, if you were with us in Romans 8, you know this. If you were called, you were justified. If you were justified, you're going to be glorified. I mean, that's all a package deal. But there is an accounting that has to be made for how we used our time, what we did in the body of Christ for him a place of reward and you know what Jesus talks about in the parable about the servants and he says you know the guys were given so much stuff to work with they did all this and the master at the end when he comes back he says well done well done because they used their time their resources well for him wouldn't it be great to hear him say well done at the end rather than well okay <laughs> you know what do you think he will say well, I suppose we could tell ourselves, well, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that for him, but yes, I, I do have these areas of my life, one, just one or two, that dishonors him, but, you know, you have to keep something for yourself, don't you? Do you? Do you really? Is clinging to something unfit or unholy, I mean, anything, does it match Romans 12:1 and what it is saying? No, there really isn't anything there. What then is to be done? Soul work. Soul work. Coming clean. Confession, which Cindy gave us such a great example of earlier today. Seeing it as God sees it. I want to excise that from the tape, probably. <laughs> Somebody will think it was some big deal, yeah. We'll cut that out. Seeing sin as God sees it is what confession is. And repentance, which means turning around. And new habits of thought and deed being put in the place of sinful and wicked things. Did you know that working all the sin out of your life is not losing anything? Did you know that? It's actually a gain. But I don't want to let this go. Let it go. 
It's a game to let that go. There is great spiritual power in holiness. And frankly, hanging on to sin carries really serious risks because you never know how devastating the consequences can be. And in my line of work, I, get, I have to see it all the time, how people treasure little sins that blossom and conquer the soul and eventually destroy faith and lives and relationships and homes. People that harbor little sins, so-called little sins, often fail to realize how much damage they're doing to themselves and to other people. And I've seen too many marriages collapse because of little hidden sins in the heart that aren't dealt with. So what are we saying? Live as a recipient of divine mercy. Well, how does a person live like that? In gratitude, right? Give yourself to God joyfully as a thank you gift, a return gift. Doesn't he who did all deserve all? I mean, what else is there to hold back? Render it. Verse 1 closes with these words, which is your spiritual service of worship. Like I said, some translations say reasonable service. Either one can render that word in the original text properly, so it could be reasonable or it could be spiritual. It is spiritual because it's a genuine spiritual act, if it's, that's the proper way to take it. Your spirit reaching out to God in faith and love, worshiping in spirit and truth, as Jesus said. It could be reasonable and then it's totally right. It's just fitting. It's the appropriate response. Either translation makes good sense. The issue is, can you do that? I guess the issue is, will you do that? If you are wavering, say, well, I don't know if I should do that. Give God myself as a living and holy sacrifice. Then you don't really understand yet the mercies of God. Not yet. You should pray and ask God to reveal to you all that he has done for you in Christ and how little you deserved it. Now, verse 2 is the next necessary step, building off what has been done in verse 1. The verbs in verse 2 are different. They're present tense, and in Greek, that doesn't mean today. It means continuous. It's a continuous action. It suggests continuous, ongoing action. And we have a negative and a positive verb, a don't and a do. There's a contrast there in verse 2. The negative smacks 21st century American Christianity sort of right in the face. It says, Horrible words. I'm sorry to have to read them to you. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed means just what it sounds like. Shaped, molded, pressed into, patterned after. And the word world is it's not the word cosmos like you often have in the, like John 3.16, God so loved the world, the cosmos, the created order, everything like that. It's the word, uh, word um, Ionia, which is the age. Don't love the way things are. The, the, you know, the Germans have a term, zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. That's exactly what he's talking about. The time, the spirit of the age, the common way that is all around us. Don't be conformed to that. In many very important ways, Christians are to be nonconformists. You really want to be different? You really want to be unique? Well, you can paint your hair multiple colors. That's one way to do that. But if you want to really be different, because so many people are doing that, be holy. That'll, be, that'll shake them up. <laughs> My gosh, they're so weird. They're holy. You know, I mean, that's, 
You want to be different, do that. Love virtue. Love virtue and you'll really get people confused. You'll be a counterculture radical if you love what is good. There is a way of things, cultural expectations, ways of thinking, ways of relating, ways of talking, ways of making value judgments, ways of looking. You could call it fashion, and we mean much more than clothes by that, although that's included. Fashions of philosophy, fashions of common street wisdom, fashions of morality, fashions of behavior. That's what he's talking about. The times, the Ionia, the age in which we live. It presses us. It tries to shape our souls even. And much of it, most of it, is evil. And we being delivered from wickedness by the mercies of God are to resist such conformity and break it. Break out of it. And to succeed in this requires labor and great care. You know, some people feel pressed in by those big public sins, you know, drug abuse or alcohol abuse or infidelity or partying and all that kind of stuff and that's all those are ways that people are pressed into the world's mold but for most Christians the temptations and the conformity are way more subtle than that because most of us don't do that stuff attitudes that feed a self-centered view of life are just as damaging and worldly conforming as those other things the I deserve attitude, pride, vanity, the desire to win the approval of ungodly people, playing the victim, bitterness in the heart, seeking wisdom from ungodly sources. Those are all quiet sins, picking up the wrong magazines for the wrong advice because they, have, they mainly involve ways of thinking. Of, of giving oneself over to one's feelings and emotions that are being led and pressed by the world's attitudes. There's many kinds of internal evils that the age in which we live loves and gives hearty approval to. But they grieve the Spirit of God who wants to conform us to Christ-likeness. And the constant barrage in our culture of messages from the current media, all the media, I mean film and television and radio and the stage and books and all that stuff, overwhelmingly supports, all that stuff overwhelmingly supports evil inclinations and desires. Overwhelmingly. Not 100%, but the vast majority of it. It is a godless age in which we live. It's much like the first century when Paul wrote this. The time in which we live is very much like his time. And to not conform to it, to not be shaped by it, involves a, a deliberate and sustained effort. Soul work. External choices and internal work. There are so many things in popular culture a Christian rejects and says no to. Things we don't see, there's things we don't listen to, there's things we don't involve ourselves in, or shouldn't, is what I mean. Why? It's because of its influence? Partly. Partly because it does shape us. But most of us lie to ourselves and say we're not influenced. I'm above influenced by those such things, you know. People always say, it doesn't bother me. 
But the real reason to say no is because you've presented yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice, and it bothers him. That's why. If it doesn't bother you, maybe you're not where you should be. Evil should bother you. And if you're comfortable with it, you're in trouble. You're already conformed by the world. That word holy in verse 1 means set apart. Christians are a people set apart. So what does that mean? Historically, it means giving the call to holiness its full weight. That's always been a challenge for Christians to do. And sometimes we do it right and sometimes we do it wrong. There are different ways people have tried to do this, to be set apart. Some Christians have chosen physical separation, crawling off in a cave somewhere or sitting on top of a pole or something, forming little Christian communities like the Amish or something where you just won't let the world in, we'll just keep it old. Of course, they never take it out anywhere either. Some have sought to establish a very rigid set of rules governing conduct. You can't own a deck of cards. You can't ever lift your foot in a dance. You can't enter a movie theater ever. You can't... Things that might lead in the direction of worldliness and sometimes do for people. So you make rules. And that has the advantage of a, a clear-cut separation, but it also, sadly, focuses on all the wrong things, which is the external. Holiness in groups like that, not long after you start something like that with the rule thing, people start measuring each other by externals. And that becomes a standard of holiness, which is wrong because it ignores the heart. You can be a very clean-cut Uno playing monster. See, Uno doesn't have face cards. That's what's evil about a deck of cards. If you've ever been an old Baptist or something, you know what I'm talking about. Now, you can play Uno, but you can't play with a real deck of cards because it's associated with gambling or something. But that's not New Testament Christianity, that kind of attitude. That is not to say there may not be dangers in those things. There might be. There often are dangers in something. But what is the biblical way to resist those dangers or to avoid those dangers or to overcome them? The right way is the positive present tense verb in verse 2. I urge you, to, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but, and here it comes, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be, prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The counter to worldly conformity is metamorphosis. And that's the Greek word that's actually used here. The verb conform suggests these outside influences pressing us and shaping us. The word transform suggests an inward change out of which flows a different life. So when we come to a deck of cards, we can say, you know, I don't gamble, so I can play Old Nate or something with this deck and be okay with it. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, I, I, I can go to a movie, but I will discern what movies would offend my Lord and what ones would not, so I will choose wisely. I'll read a book, I'll pick a book that will not offend God, that is a book that is consistent with his moral character and holiness and not a book that is inconsistent with those things, my, the music I listen to, whatever. It, it's not that it's rules, it's holiness expressed in life, see? That same verb, metamorphosis, appears in 2 Corinthians 3, 
17:18, wonderful verse. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So this transformation is the Spirit of God working in our life to make us more like God, not to become gods, but to be like God in His moral character and in holiness. So it is God's work in us changing us, but to be successful requires our intense and concerned cooperation. Transformation means yielding ourselves to those promptings of the Holy Spirit who desires to transform us to be more and more like Christ himself. So separation, holiness, comes from within us as we view our own lives in a sin-filled world and choose out of our own love for Christ and our own hunger for righteousness to say no to anything that's an offense to Him. And that can be very counterculture. But you know, it's not a burden to say no when your heart is His. It's, it's a joy to do it. To be around worldly people and say, you know, I don't get involved in that. That's just not something I do because I love God and that's just not pleasing to Him. But, you know, not crabby and negative and down on other people. It's just, you know, that's not, that's not what I'm into. I like good. I'm into good. And I've always found good way more exciting than evil. Always. Even when I was evil, I found good more interesting than evil. And even when I still am evil, I find good more interesting than evil. You know, saying no to the world becomes a pleasure. And, and there is no real loss. The, the only thing you're going to lose is feeling contaminated by letting go of sin and feeling unsatisfied. Holiness means enjoyment. Enjoying God more than the world. The one whose mind has been renewed by the Spirit of God delights in God. But oh, that delight it has to be cultivated you know and that's so hard in a very noisy world in a very busy world but it has to be done a renewed mind stands above the spirit of the age it sees through the spirit of the age it sees how shallow and empty it is and the renewed mind is able to comprehend eternal truths that are revealed by God because it's revealed by the spirit to our spirit that's what the Bible says and that's not some super mystical thing. It's just there. When you focus on doing the things God's way and renew your mind in the Word of God and in the Spirit of God, it's just true that you have a renewed mind. It's not some mystical zap. It's just true. You just see the world differently. The next line in verse 2 is very important, that you may prove what the will of God is. God reveals His will in Scripture. And as you actually put it into practice, it proves itself. It proves itself true. And God's will and your delight become clearer and clearer as you go. Well, what is His will? It's that which is good and acceptable and perfect and all the things it says in the Bible. I was speaking to someone once who was a, a church member choosing a sinful path, and, and I would bring up scriptures hoping to prick the conscience of this Christian, but it, it didn't happen. And the response was, this is word for word, from that person. The Bible does not match my experience. Now, I've heard that before. Those exact words, in fact, in other places. And that means I tried it the Bible's way, but I'm not happy because it didn't work for me. 
So I'm carving out my own way without it. Now, I knew this person had not tried it the Bible's way because when we had our conversation, it revealed no understanding of faith, no effort to forgive, no comprehension of love, and no humility. And those are all requirements to find God's way. And none of it was there. This person lived an external Christian life for many years, was regarded as a godly person, but never labored in metamorphosis, never did soul work, never made the self a living and holy sacrifice. And so they came to ruin. There was no renewed mind, only a very worldly mind wearing Christian clothes. So the will of God in that person's mind proved false to them. But if you do it his way, all the way, as he says to do here, it is surprising how authenticated God's way is and how true it proves itself to be. God's will defined in verse 2 is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And that, those things become ever more vindicated and glorious. They become proven as you live them. But to prove it, to live it, you have to say no to the pressures that conform from the world, conform your soul. That is spiritual death. Instead, renew your mind according to God's power and spirit. Well, nobody says it better than our old friend Matthew Henry, the old Puritan guy. So let me read you what he says about Romans 12, 2. Taking heed of forming schemes for happiness, as though it lay in the things of this world which soon pass away. Take heed of those schemes, he says. Watch out for them. Take heed of compliance with the spirit and temper of the carnal and worldly and of being molded into their fashions, conversation, and manners. Do not fall in with the customs of those who walk in the lusts of the flesh and mind earthly things. Let it be the earnest governing desire and pursuit of your souls in prayer to God and in the use of all means of his appointment and the improvement of Christian graces and privilege that ye may be metamorphosed or changed into a directly contrary, better, and more glorious and abiding form in the renewal of the heart still more and more by the Holy Spirit. The gracious and effectual work of the Holy Spirit first begins in the understanding and is carried on by further influence under its illumination to the will, affections, and conversation till there is a thorough change of the whole man into the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Let this be our principal aim, he says, that we may experimentally know, that means in your life, and be capable of proving and recommending to others the truth, excellence, and importance of the will of God revealed in his word with regard to what is good in itself and for us, with regard to what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, and with regard to what is sufficient to make a finished Christian thoroughly furnished unto good works. Anything less than that is missing out on what it means to be a Christian in the world. What we're meant to be. 
The renewing of the mind is a continual process. And it's not grievous. It's an adventure and transformation and proving God's will, living it out in the real world and watching it authenticate itself. It's fantastic. And can you find a more worthy goal in life than that? I don't think so. Let's pray. Lord, we all sit here this morning aware profoundly of our need for a renewed mind and affections and hearts. And we pray for the grace of the Spirit to help us to labor in the disciplines that you outline in your word that will lead us to that place soul work. Grant us the courage to shut out the noise and to spend the time it takes to be new creations, to live differently, to affect the world for Jesus Christ. We know it's there, and I think we know it can happen. I think we're afraid to give things up. But help us to see the joy at the end and see that we lose nothing when we lose sin and worldliness. We only gain. And what greater joy we gain in cleanliness and being approved by you. We thank you for the promise that that can be for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.